1: Yes, that theme music can only mean one thing and one thing only. It is. Well, It could mean two things, I guess. It could be the old Lost in Space TV show, really. But it's actually Lost in Science, your half-hour dose of fully informed science radio. My name is Chris, and today I am going to be speaking to Dr. Sandra Abel from James Cook University. Um, You may have seen some news reports recently about The Hunt. For the thylacine, aka the Tasmanian tiger, but not in Tasmania.
0: I have seen some reports. Yeah, it, it is, is very exciting. It
1: is in FNQ, and I am FN curious to see what this is all about and why we think there is a um, could be a thylacine on the um, far north Queensland.
0: You're a Queenslander. Yes. How would that make you feel? If the thylacine was found in Queensland, and Queensland only.
1: Kind of proud, but Far North Queensland, it really is its own beast, a striped beast, if you will. And <laughs> so, you know, they do things a bit different up there. So look, we Will, I think, you know, the, the, obviously the jury is out. It would be fantastic if it's there, but yeah, we only want to find out what the chances are. So yeah, we'll see what science has to say about that. Claire, what are you doing?
0: Well, I'm actually going to be looking at a different beast today, a beast that lives in your iPhone, the Siri beast. What is it? What is it all about? And why does it work? How does it work? You know, Siri, the, like, voice activation. Okay technology where you can ask questions and it and and it and it'll take your context and give you an answer rather than a google search that'll just give you a you know that'll that'll just keyword search you okay yeah We're, we're
1: going one particular platform here obviously are we
0: yeah, yeah, we are. We are going single platform right. for this story only, that is. But well, we
1: are not endorsed or paid for by any multinational electronics manufacturers. No, no, I mean, no.
0: I, I mean, I guess when technology comes out, you like, I mean, this isn't an endorsement necessarily. No, 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 no. Of Siri. this is just an explanation yeah. of the technology.
1: Yeah, well, forget I mentioned it, forget I questioned.
0: <laughs> and we also have Manisha in the studio who's going to be doing a story Quite close to her heart, all about her own research, her own PhD research about microbats and how they use tunnels and faunal bridges to get around.
1: Tunnels. Tunnels.
0: Yeah, tunnels. They can
1: fly, can't they? They don't need to
0: burrow. No, but when they're trying to get across roads, roads can be noisy, roads can have a lot of lights. There can be a lot of different uh, situations with roads. So they tend to use these faunal tunnels that are meant for terrestrial animals. But she's been finding some interesting things that actually the bats are using them as well. But more about that later.
1: Yes, stay tuned for that same bat time, same bat channel. Don't touch that dial. listening to Lost in Science on the Community Radio Network. The thylacine, or Tasmanian tiger, as the name suggests, is an extinct species from Tasmania. But what you may not know is that it once existed on the Australian mainland. And what's more, there have been reported sightings to this day around the continent. And today I'm speaking to Dr. Sandra Abel from James Cook University, who's leading a scientific survey to investigate sightings from far north Queensland and find out if the thylacine still exists. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Abel.
2: No problem. Thanks for having me.
1: Now, I have so many questions, mostly just what? But first, look, I guess I really want to just clarify what I just said there. So the um, thylacine is known from Tasmania, but it did exist on the mainland. Is that correct?
2: That's correct. And we do have our fossil evidence from Queensland, dated at about 2000 years ago.
1: Okay. So you are currently um, leading a search for it. Now, what does this search involve?
2: Well, it actually is um, something that we've been doing for the last couple of years, actually. We've been surveying for mammals and predators. uh, They're predators in North Queensland, basically for different reasons, obviously. We've been looking for populations of the northern Betong, which is an, an endangered, very small kangaroo, and we've recently been, uh, made, um, some re- a rediscovery of a population that we hadn't seen since 2003. So that was exciting. And we have been looking at, you know, feral animals and, you know, we've got some concerns about their decline. So we- this is sort of work that we've been doing and, and it's ongoing. And the interest in the thylacine has kind of sparked everybody's curiosity and we've got some additional funds that have been made available. To do some, basically extend our camera trapping into the Cape and surrounding areas, so it 's very exciting
1: okay, so that's, that is very promising because it did it does sound like a very um, strange thing just off on the, the first sound of it, but the idea that this is um, part of an ongoing project is is really interesting, and so it sounds like you 've had a good response to it too
2: we have, and yeah there, there definitely is lots of support and uh, you know i've had offers of uh, volunteers and help and, and funding um, come forward so This is a really great opportunity for us because we know that mammals are declining um, in North Queensland and in Australia in general. We've got the worst record Australia actually has for the extinction and declines of of mammals. So this is really timely. You know, we need to go out there and and keep doing this work, keep trying to understand why mammals are declining in general. And if we happen to find thalithine, well, it would be absolutely very exciting
1: yeah, look, I think that would be absolutely amazing. Um, but you have... This is not just, like, the random search for thylacine, so you, there have been some sightings up there, and although, of course, you know, some details like their locations are going to be secret, I'd imagine, um, what can you tell us about the sightings?
2: Well, in particular, there have been two really um, credible people who have come forward with lots of experience, and, and, and their, their descriptions are really detailed. They were able to... to um, Observe the animals with good light and for a longer period of time than most of the sightings that I've been receiving. So they are quite credible accounts and it, it makes us really very curious um, to, to and, and you know, wonder if there's this possibility. Observational evidence, is, we, we do have to be careful because we can't actually say that it is a record based on somebody's observation. That's all that it is right now. What we need to do is get some really hard, real data, and that would be a very clear, obviously, undoctored photograph, and uh, preferably, and what what I'd be aiming for, is to get some DNA evidence as well.
1: Wow. I guess the immediate precedent in Australia would be the the night parrot.
2: Yes, so there's lots of examples, actually, of um, rediscoveries. I mentioned earlier we had our own rediscovery uh, recently of the Northern Beton a uh, population that we haven't seen since 2003. Um, it's in a very remote location. It took lots of effort. We had 100 cameras go out. We had to leave them for at least a month and you know, lots of hiking and really hard work to get that data. So it's not unheard of. We're talking about really remote locations where people don't get to. They're nocturnal animals, just like the the mm. Um They're difficult to discover. So, you know, if they are out there... Obviously, they're not you know, very easily found, so it's, it's not impossible.
1: What do you think is the likelihood? The
2: likelihood? So while it isn't impossible, the actual probability of a finding is quite low. Just There are a few different factors to that. There, it's the, the age of the sightings, so how long ago those sightings were made, and also just the, the, the sheer difficulty. And, of course, it's the possibility that they aren't out there, that it was something else. That um, that was observed. So it is actually. I think I'd have to be one of the luckiest person, people in the, in the world to actually discover them. But I think it's it's exciting to to imagine that they could be there. So
1: yeah. What about yeah. the um the traditional owners of the land? Have they got any um, sightings or stories that they can shed some light on it?
2: I have heard um, through other people. I haven't had my own discussions yet with um, traditional owners and. I'm still actually deciding on location, so that will come with me. Uh, you know, deciding on the location, and certainly I'll be looking for some great, you know, conversations with uh, traditional owners. Um, obviously, I need to get permissions, and I need to be very sensitive culturally with all of this as well. So that's my aim. What I would love to do is have um, traditional owners actually helping and on the ground and and um, sharing knowledge and experiences. That's my that's my hope. So. But as I said, I still have to decide on location yet, so I haven't had those conversations myself.
1: Fair enough. Well, look, it is an extremely exciting project, and I truly hope that you do have like the one of the most startling discoveries uh, Thank you. in biology. <laughs> um, yeah, look, it's, it is very good, and, yeah, best of luck with the search.
2: Thank you. I have so many good wishes coming in, and everybody's hoping, hoping that um, yeah, they'll be discovered. I've also noticed that there's a, a lot of concern about uh, you know, what will happen if we do, and maybe we should leave them alone. And I guess my response to that is, you know, if, if they are there, and we f- if we do just leave them alone, they could disappear, they could decline without us knowing about them at all. So it's kind of naive to think that if we, if we just don't know about them, that they'll be okay. Mm. I think with what's happening in the world, there's, there's lots of development, um, you know, potential for the cape. So it's important to have these discoveries, in terms of you know conservation as well, and that is absolutely the top, the, the highest priority for our work. That's what what we're doing all of this for.
0: Mm. Is
2: all this hard work is to conserve and understand why mammals are declining, and to to try to prevent that and actually you know get them protected.
1: Well, I hope that that larger aim is successful as well.
2: Thank you so much.
1: I appreciate it. And thanks for speaking to us. Okay. Thanks. That was Dr. Sandra Abel from James Cook University.
0: So the other morning I was all cozied up in bed asleep and I hear the familiar footfall of the cat coming into the bedroom who decided to announce her arrival in the best way she knows how, as you know, with a with a big meow.
1: Right, okay. Yep,
0: yep, meow. Anyway, the next thing I hear is my phone gives two beeps <laughs> and it says, sorry, I could not understand your question. Please repeat it. So it, it turns out that my cat had voice-activated Siri on my phone.
1: Oh, she didn't just stand on the button? She did
0: not stand on the button. The button and the phone was in a small, like, drawer. She had definitely voice-activated it with her meow. It was very weird. It was a very wow. weird situation. Wow. be weirder meow. if
1: Siri had of understood.
0: Well, I know, I know. And I, I'd just woken up. The cat's talking. The iPhone's talking. <laughs> I was really confused. Yeah. I had no idea you could even voice activate Siri. I just uploaded the new iPhone software and apparently it's got voice activation in it. And all you need to do to voice activate an iPhone Siri is say, Hey Siri, and then ask a question. So, presumably, the cat's meow sounded like, Hey Siri.
1: Hmm. <laughs> good on, good on you, Siri. There's a win for Siri right there. <laughs>
0: Anyway, it got me thinking about Siri and voice recognition in general. And for those who don't have an iPhone or don't buy into Apple, which I completely understand, let me explain Siri for you. Mm -hmm. So Siri is the digital assistant as part of Apple's operating systems. In other words, it's voice activated and it takes your commands through your voice and tries to interpret it and then carry out a required task if possible. So things like what restaurants are in this neighborhood or what's the weather going to be like today? Or um, is there a God? Uh, are things that you know, Siri can answer for you?
1: So I have used Siri for such useful things. Like you now when you're watching uh, a movie and you're curious about an actor in it, and you go, oh, you yeah. say, like, Siri, how old is Justin Timberlake? And it tells you how old is Justin Timberlake.
0: Oh, right. Anyway, so Siri is actually an acronym. It stands for Speech Interpretation and Recognition Interface. And it was originally its own app. The Siri app was its own app, was its own thing that you could download for your phone, but then Apple took it over and began integrating it into its own phones from about 2011. So how Siri works. Okay, so Siri takes a human or cat voice Mm -hmm. and then what will have to happen is Siri will have to go through the process of understanding, first of all, what sounds we're making, the language we're using to ask the question, um, our accent and then the context of the question that we're asking, and then we'll go and find an answer. So with each command that we give Siri, Siri has to go through four different stages to give us an answer. So the first stage is voice recognition, cat voice recognition. This is considered the most difficult of all things. Firstly, Siri will have to distinguish human speech from other ambient sounds that might be... Cats. Or cats, or just not distinguish that in the first instance. And then when you speak something to Siri, it's going to collect your voice and any ambient sound and, and distinguish between the two and convert your voice into a data file, which it then sends to servers. Ah. So the challenges. is for the programmers are to account for things like, yeah, accent, dialect, small nuances of your voice, not to mention any speech difficulties if you might have them. Aside from that, yeah, it's it's quite difficult to – Distinguish one noise from another. So, voice from, you know, the music that might be playing yeah. in the background or the movie that you're watching, that Justin Timberlake movie yeah, that yeah. you keep watching.
1: But it's interesting you send, it to, you send it to service, so you have to be on the line for it to work.
0: You need to be on the line. Yeah. You need to be hooked up. Yeah, with the internet, you need to be for Siri to work. Yeah, yeah, and the more you use Siri, the better it gets at recognizing you. Mm-hmm. So, and then, and also, also it learns your own it patterns. Also, yeah, so it learns your patterns. But then, in the more people around the world use Siri, the better Siri gets as well. So it's not just learning you and your vocabulary and your your diction. It's learning more when from the greater hive mind. So stage two... Y-
1: there's a hive mind.
0: <laughs> so I'm told by the reptilian underlords. Overlords?
1: Underlords. They're under the ground, they? are under the ground, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, you said hive minds, so there might be bee people as well.
0: Oh, there's definitely bee people. it has got yeah. to be bee people. Who are going to pollinate our plants <laughs> after all the bees go... All right, so the next stage is connecting to the servers. So Siri takes your phonetics, turns it into a file, sends it to the servers for processing. So like we said, you need an mm-hmm. internet connection. Um, and from here, your words get put through a different different flowchart branches to arrive at a possible solution to what you're asking. So I guess logic sort of matrices like mm-hmm. if and or yeah. like a different, uh, what do you call them?
1: Flowchart branching. Flowchart
0: branches. Yeah. Um, mm. The servers already have a really big database of common questions and their possible answers. So there's usually. Decision you know, tree? Was that what you for? A decision tree. Yeah. yeah. The best kind of tree for when you don't know what you want for dinner. Right. You know, I hate making that decision every night. Anyway. Ask the tree. I ask the decision tree. So. It's got a huge database of questions and possible answers. So there's normally if it can identify the words that you're asking, there's normally no problem in answering common questions like, what's the best place to have pizza around here or how hot is it going to be today? And if Siri fails to be able to answer a standard response, what Siri normally does is just say, would you like to search the web for that? Mm. So that's that's Siri's default. So when when you've got that, you know you've sort of – confuse the servers yeah yeah but you know there are a lot of different ways to ask different questions so how does Siri understand the meaning and the context of what you've said so Siri systems try to take language and work out intent which is quite difficult for humans let alone um, phones for example you would understand that I wanted to see a movie if I, if I said I could see a movie later. Or mm, what's playing at the cinema? But this is quite an intuitive process that a machine struggles with. So the way Siri does it is rather than try and break down entire sentences and interpret their meaning as a whole, as other voice recognition software has generally attempted, Siri uses models of real objects and concepts as well as how they might work together to decipher the requests. This means you can ask Siri the same thing in a number of different ways and Siri is going to look for keywords and the context of how they fit together, which is great and means that um, Siri actually has a higher degree of accuracy than other types of voice recognition models. And because it has access to a large amount of data, Via the various servers and apps, it can tap into other services, right? Yeah.
1: So when I, I like when I ask it how old Justin Blake is, presumably Siri doesn't have a model of Justin Blake in her processor mind. No, she would go and ask Wikipedia and get the yes. basic data.
0: Yes, get the basic data and then bring it bring it back to you. Okay. Like she would, um, if you said, "Like, what's the closest place to get coffee around here?" Mm-hmm. She would go into your. Maps app and yeah. then look around in there and then bring a whole lot of different servers data together to give you the answer and finally producing the results so unlike a search engine that returns a long list of raw links related to keywords, so yeah series designed to interpret your request, hone in on what you think you want, and perform actions to give you a more limited but more correct amount. Of data or services. So she does understand context. And like any good program, Siri has some great Easter eggs. Now, you know what Easter eggs are, don't you, Chris?
1: Well, it's nearly Easter, so yes.
0: (laughs) So Easter eggs are sort of like fun things that are hidden in code. Mm -hmm. So when you ask something like, what is the meaning of life? Siri's response is, I find it odd that you would ask this of an inanimate object. (laughs) Um, And one of the other answers that she gives for the meaning of life is. That's easy. It's a philosophical question concerning the purpose and significance of life or existence in general.
1: She's so cheerful about that.
0: So I tried asking her if she can speak to cats, but unfortunately, Siri is staying mum on that one. I'm Maggie Adam and
2: Pocock, and you're listening to Lost in Science on 3CR.
3: So, today I thought I would spend some time talking about my PhD thesis. Woohoo! Yay! So, in my thesis, I look at the impact of roads on insectivorous bats. Now, these are our little microbats, so they're not really the flying foxes that a lot of our listeners may be familiar with, but they're the little insect-eating ones. Yeah,
0: the ones you might see racing around a lot at night time. Yeah,
3: exactly. If or, you're lucky. Yeah, if you're lucky. Or I know a lot of people that live in country areas say that they have them in their eaves, like in the roof. Mm. So some people may be very familiar with our little insectivorous bats. And so today I just thought I would talk about some of the work that I have been doing, looking at the impacts of roads on these little guys. Yeah. Yeah. So I thought maybe I would start with some background information Just so our listeners are a bit more aware of the extent of the problem on Earth, um, there are more than 60 million kilometers of road on Earth. And this number continues to grow with each year. Actually, that stats all the way back from 2011. So in the six years that have passed, I'm sure this number has grown quite a fair bit. I need to put that into context. It's sort of like my supervisor likes to say that it's 18 trips to the moon and back. So if you can even imagine how far that is it's it's a lot of roads to be um, having on earth and all of these roads can have quite a detrimental impact on wildlife and I'm sure that the listeners are quite familiar with one particular type of impact which is roadkill a lot of our fauna are hit by cars and this can be detrimental not just for the fauna populations but it's also quite detrimental for the drivers
0: It's dangerous. It's
3: very dangerous, especially if you're thinking of things like large fauna. In our situation, kangaroos and things like that, kangaroos, wallabies, koalas, if they hit your car, it's pretty bad for everyone. So roadkill, or well, in the literature, it's referred to as road mortality. But road mortality, it's part of this larger array of impacts, which are known as barrier impacts. And basically, as the name implies... Barrier impacts are those in which the road is acting as a barrier for individuals to move freely across the landscape. Either the individuals are getting hit by the vehicle, or maybe they're avoiding the road due to light and noise pollution, or maybe the gap in the canopy, like in the tree canopy above the road, is just too large that they can't make their way across the gap, so they can't cross the road successfully. And in one way or another, the road is then acting as a barrier to the movement of individuals across the road. So in my thesis, I'm studying these sorts of barrier impacts, but I'm trying to stay away from the focus on terrestrial animals and looking at these insectivorous bats. So one really obvious question I tend to get whenever I bring up my thesis with anyone is, well, bats have wings. They can fly. Yeah. So so how are they? Can't they just fly across the gap? Exactly. So can't they just make their way over the road? This is true. This is true for most bats. Like they, Some bats can make it across the road, no problem. But you also have to think of the environment that the bat's living in. It's a nocturnal environment. So when we add things like light and noise to the environment, we're presenting new challenges that they may not be used to coping with. And also... You have to think that when we say bats, we're not talking about one species. Like in my study area alone in central Victoria, I evaluate the movement and the behavior of 12 different species of bats. So it's hard to say that we can just sum it down to one behavior or one movement type. So although some bats are quite capable of crossing the road, it's not the case for every bat. So there are some species that actually fly quite quickly and they fly high above the canopy. So these species, they tend to be more tolerant to changes in their environment because they're not impeded from moving. But we do have some species that are actually quite susceptible to change. These species are vulnerable outside of the canopy cover and when they're exposed to light or noise. And so any sort of change to their environment can be pretty harmful. And these species are the populations that are arguably, arguably most at risk when um, we think about urbanization and how the urbanization is expanding, expanding across the globe. So, in one of my chapters of my PhD thesis, I'm investigating whether or not there is a barrier effect for the roads in our in my study area in Central Victoria. Um, but also seeing if they 're using mitigation strategies, so if the
0: bats are using mitigation strategies yeah
3: exactly what, what some of what would they be so for terrestrial animals, a lot of the time we install things like crossing structures, so basically it 's a passageway or a corridor. That's often fenced, and it's a safe place for the individuals to move across the highway or across the landscape without accessing the road. Like a fauna
0: pedestrian crossing. Yeah,
3: basically, basically, yeah, like a fauna crossing. That's the perfect way to say it. In a lot of the media, we see a lot of images of these overcrossings. So I'm sure some mm. of our, re- our our listeners would have seen... Like these big land bridges, and they're like there's an iconic one from Banff National Park out of Canada, and they're often designed for moving large fauna, so large cats or moose and things like that. But here we have a lot of crossing structures for our Australian fauna as well. And in Victoria in particular, we have a different style of crossing structure. We have underpasses, and so instead of going over the road, these, um, as the name implies, go under the road. So if you want to imagine something like where the road is going over a creek or a riverbed and you can see the vegetation under the road and maybe there's some fencing along the side, that's quite likely a a crossing structure for, uh, say, koalas and kangaroos to make their way across the road. So although these, um, these structures are typically designed for terrestrial fauna, I wanted to investigate whether or not the bats were also using these structures because they are just vegetated corridors, so why shouldn't a bat be using it? Um, I surveyed the movement of bats above and through these structures and found that they were actually actively used by bats. And when a structure is suitable for bats, so when it's large enough, when it's vegetated, and when it actually provides a good corridor, so a good connection between two good patches of land, bats will actually redirect their flight path and choose to go through these corridors, through the underpasses, as opposed to going over the road and um, flying in this high-risk area. Another cool thing I found was that these responses to the structures was quite dependent on some of those traits that I mentioned earlier. The bats that fly high above the canopy, they don't really experience much of a barrier impact and they also don't use the structure. So it goes to add to the current literature that those bats are a bit more tolerant of changes to their environment. But then the bats that are dependent on the forest cover, they experience a strong barrier effect. And when a large vegetated crossing structure was available to them and when they had access to these structures, they were able to access the other side of the highway. So their movement in the landscape was actually restored. So that's actually quite important because it's these sorts of animals that are, the animals that are more susceptible to the change in their environment, the animals that are more susceptible to urbanization, they're probably the ones that need the most help. So if these mitigation strategies are working, then it's quite um, important for their persistence in the changing landscape. So that was one of my chapters. And some of the other um, chapters or some of the other questions I've asked are basically how far into the surrounding habitat do road effects extend? So do the impacts just stay at the side of the road? Or can we observe some sort of trickling effect into the surrounding habitat where where that habitat may not be as suitable as habitat away from the road for these bats? And the other questions I was asking was how artificial lighting at night will impact bat movement. So I actually put up LED light structures into these same crossing structures that I've been talking about and tested if it changed the way that the bats use the structure. It's sort of two-sided because it gives an idea of how the bats would respond to new streetlights being put up along the highway in this area because this highway at present is not lit. So it would be interesting to see how they respond to that. But then it's also interesting because a lot of the um, newer structure styles are proposed to be lit so that they can also be used by people. So if you think about um, vegetated corridors that then can be used as bike paths and things like that for people, in most cases, they'll need to be lit so that the people can use it. But if that then makes them less useful for the wildlife, then it's important to acknowledge that because the structures are like primarily there for for the wildlife to use. But yeah, anyways, for now, I don't actually have answers to those questions, but I hope that I'll be able to share them soon.
1: All right, that's it for another episode of Lost in Science. Lost in Science is recorded at Tuesday at 3CR in Melbourne. It airs across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. We would love you to get in touch with us. Please send us an email at our Gmail account, which is lostinsci at gmail.com, or you can find us on Facebook. Just look up Lost in Science on 3CR. You can also look up the same on Twitter, or you can look up our podcast, your favorite podcast service. If you do that, Please uh, review us and rate us so that we get found more easily by other people. Or you can just listen to us on the radio the old-fashioned way, where once again, same time next week, Stu, Manisha, Claire, and me, Chris, will get Lost Lost in in science. Science!